2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So far, let us pray. Holy God, we come before you as we now uh, turn to the word, as we seek to be ministered to by uh, the exposition of the word. I pray that you would give me wisdom to bring it faithfully. Give us discerning ears that we would only receive that which is of the word. We ask that you would please then allow us to apply it, Lord. um, We know that it does no good if we just hear it in our mental faculties. Lord, we need it to be implanted. And so would you do that, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've got to remember as we look here at 2 Peter chapter 3 where we've been a little bit. So, first of all, Peter has established early on in chapter 3 that we are living in the last days. And that is the last days of world history. That time that was broken in and ushered in when Jesus Christ came. The Son of God came in the last days, Hebrews 1. We also have to remember that there are scoffers in these times that reject the return of Jesus Christ simply because it hadn't happened yet. They expected an early return. It didn't happen. And Peter says they scoff because they are willingly ignorant. It's a heart issue of the word of God. And they're willingly ignorant of the word speaking into creation, as we saw in verses 5 and 6, and then verse 6 and 7 also about the flood, and then also about the word that is at this current time reserving all things to final judgment. And so we also saw in verse 8 where Peter shifts gears, as it were, and moves to the beloved, to the church again. And he says and speaks of how God relates to time. Because everything here that they scoff is, well, God is delaying in their mind. Of course, God doesn't delay. He has his plan carved out 
from eternity. And so verse 8 we looked at. Verse 9 was last time, which was a really difficult verse. And we saw how um, I argued that the long-suffering patience of God is peculiarly to the us word. And I argued that the us word are the beloved. The beloved are his elect, and he is not willing that any of them will perish, but that all will come to repentance. And they will all be saved. And then the Lord will come. And this leads us to today's verse, verse 10. Just so you know, today is a weightier verse because verse 11 through 14 draws out the ethical implications of the day of the Lord for the believers. But today I'm going to do the theological backbone of the day of the Lord because that's really where verse 10 goes and we will get later in especially verse 13 into the new heavens the new earth and how that relates to the destruction of the old earth because there's a lot of questions is everything dissolved to nothing does God renovate in our mind so first of all notice that it says but the day of the Lord will come now in the Greek the word will come is front loaded and in Greek when you put a word at the front it's usually for emphasis and so really it will say this but come will the day of the Lord and Peter is clear it will come you and I will experience that great day and settle it therefore in your hearts now that you are going to be reckoned with there will be an accounting for you and for me It is not a matter of if, as so many people want to think. It's a matter of when. When will that day be? And so that means, husbands, you are accountable for the way you love your wives. It means, wives, you are accountable for the way you submit to your husbands and respect them. Children, it means you are accountable for the way you obey your parents. And it means for all of us, we are accountable for how we submit to our government. It means we are accountable for how we handle our phones and social media. We are accountable for the way we think, what we say. We are accountable for everything. We live in a culture that thinks we can do with our bodies what we want. God gave us our bodies with a purpose. And there's a reason he made us how we are. And so we will also be accountable with what we do with our bodies. Now many people can sit in churches for years on end and hear this over and over and over again. A thousand times over. And you'll brush it off with indifference. You're like, I've heard that before. It doesn't really matter. Is that you? How many times have you been warned Are you that arrogant? Am I that arrogant to suppose that God is lying when we brush off the warnings of the day of God Almighty? It is called the day, notice in the text, the day of the Lord. Peter has called it in verse chapter 1, verse 19, the day. He has called it the day of judgment. In verse 12, he calls it the day of God. Here he calls it the day of the Lord. 29 times in the Bible that phrase is used, the day of the Lord. 24 of those uses are in the Old Testament. It is loaded with significance. It is God who himself will then come. That's part of the point. The day of the Lord is the day of his coming when he comes to judge his enemies. And so in the Old Testament, in all those references, it is overshadowed with images of wrath, destruction, power, slaughter, Fear, helplessness, despair, and mourning. It is a dark day. 
Joel 1.15 says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. The enemies of God we see in Revelation 6 call for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of the Lamb which comes to bring judgment. That's one side of the day of the Lord. But the other side of the day of the Lord is for the people of God. It is a day of deliverance. It is a day of victory. It is a day of replenishment, a day of rebuilding, a day of rejoicing, a day of restoration. And that's why we also see in the prophets, Joel 20. Uh, 2, 23 and 26, it says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord. Ye shall eat plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people should not be ashamed. You see, that day will end all of the strains of the curse, hunger, infections, chronic diseases, funerals. It will all be over on that day. And think particularly here. Peter has sandwiched the day of the Lord in between a what we would call a, a, a merism or a chiasm in the center of beloved. Look at verse 8. But beloved. And verse 14. Wherefore beloved. And it centers. He's talking this to the people of God. Why? Because the people of God were suffering. The people of God were looking for that day and they were getting mocked for believing in Jesus. Oh, just think of the martyrs who have died for the sake of Jesus. How many believers have been robbed of their homes and stripped of their loved ones or thrown into damp prisons for years? You read the stories of some of the Puritans and some of the martyrs even today in Africa and and Saudi Arabia. Others have been tortured in uh, lots for Christ's name's sake. What joy will be theirs on that great day? Their sufferings will be vindicated Every tear was seen. The Bible says in Psalm 56, 8, it says, Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? God knows every tear of his people. And he is coming to vindicate their suffering. That day will be a day when our faith becomes sight. The ancient theologians would talk about the beatific vision, which is from the Latin, which means really a happy-making sight. It is a happy-making sight. It is a sight of joy. Oh, to see the face of our God, to live before him and to wonder at him. David looked forward to this day. He, he, he spoke of it in many ways. He says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and this will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. You see, believers, that will be the day when faith becomes sight, when we will no longer be praying to him we do not see. We will look at him and behold him with joy and delight. Oh, don't we hunger for that day to know him. He is eternal life. Nothing else comes close to knowing God. Don't all the joys of this earth just find their source, their their anchor, their substance, their fountain in Jesus Christ. But what we see in Peter is that the poles, the opposites on this day, cannot be starker, cannot be more distant. Destruction and misery compared to flourishing and joy. On this earth, we get glimpses of it. When you look at war scenes and you look at scenes of a child being born and a family being happy, those are just glimpses. 
of the end of time. The day of the Lord is the day of Christ. It is the day of the Messiah, the anointed king. The Apostle Paul calls it often the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the day in which the glory of Christ will be fully manifested. Scoffers on that day will shudder and bow. Believers will adore, but all, all of us will see him. No one is going to question at that day the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on and says that it will come as a thief in the night. Undoubtedly, the idea of a thief is the idea of unexpectedness. People aren't ready, and I believe here Peter is remembering what Jesus had said to the apostles when he says in Luke 12, he says, And this know that if the good man of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered or allowed his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. You know, thieves don't give you an ETA. You don't leave a calling card. I'm coming tonight at five in the morning, early in the morning. So alertness is vital, isn't it? Have you considered that that day will happen when most people are going to be caught off guard? Have you considered that it will happen when people think they're actually the most secure and the least vulnerable? Then he will come. Now the scoffers we saw earlier on in verses 5 and 6, they mocked the idea of a sudden change in history. But the arrival of the Lord will arrive suddenly and there are not going to be any peculiar signs that someone can point to and say, oh, there it is. The signs will be ambiguous. They cannot be used to predict the timing of Christ's return. And that's why don't go and follow after all these people that say, well, then and then we've seen them throughout history and they've been wrong time and time again. And they start new movements and new followings, new cults, new sects, all these different things. Don't go that way because he will come as a thief. It's easy to fall into spiritual slumber then, isn't it? You find yourself kind of getting comfortable in life. You know, your day to day, you're kind of in a groove, right? You got your routine carved out. You know what your week's going to look like. Can you imagine that one day that routine will be broken? Just like that. For others, it's stress. Stress is a major thing to keep us off from thinking about these things. You're either in a groove and just kind of clicking along, or your wheels are spinning, and both of them can be very distracting because in both cases, you don't stop to think. And to meditate. And to realize he is coming soon. We're going to see in the following verses. In next sermons. That to be really ready. To be really alert. Requires ethical purity. It requires a lifestyle of holiness. Because you look at those verses. They are all about how we live. Now we move on to in which the heaven shall pass with a great noise. Although the timing of the return is uncertain to us, we don't know when, the coming itself will not go unnoticed. It will be unmistakable. J.P. Lang, a commentator from the, I believe, 18th century, he says this, It will be attended by a war cry, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. 
And so Peter says in similar language, just a little differently, he says, the heaven shall pass away, notice the word, with a great noise. You notice that stress on that word. It is used only here in the Bible. And even in classical Greek writings, it's so rare that the commentators and the linguists struggle to capture it. There's no English word close to what it means. It's got the idea of a great storm. It's got the idea of a parchment, a scroll, or a house going up into fire. It's got the idea not only of fierceness and the sound of that, It's also got the sound, as many commentators noted, of a passing arrow. Brisking past you. So think of speed and the sound of whizzing. Perhaps you've been at a fire where there was gasoline involved and you've got that idea of explosive speed involved in this thing. And so in one Greek word, Peter captures both the power and the speed of the day of the Lord. Now you've got to think of that. The power is clear. It means you can't do anything to stop it. But the speed is important. Once the day comes, you can't quickly go home and get things tidy and in order and pretend you're reading your Bible or something like that. That's not how you will have time. It's coming fast and it comes furiously. A tempest, some, old of the Greek, some older English versions speak of. A great violence others use. A terrible noise. These are some of the ways the ancient translators, of the, before the King James even translated this word. Notice also it says, melting with fervent heat. And it says, then later it says, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The word for melt is kind of interesting actually because it's actually just a standard word in the Greek luo, which means to release or to loosen something. And in this case, it means to dissolve, to destroy, or to bring something to naught. The word for fervent heat stresses this idea of a feverish burning, a ferocious heat. And the last word, where it says burned up, the idea there is of fully consuming. So you've got all of these. You've got dissolving, feverish burning, and utterly consuming. Just picture what's happening here. Now, I think it's no accident that he stresses these three words because you look back at verse 5. Look what it says there. They're ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. When we looked at that verse, we saw that the word standing means holding it all together. Jesus Christ, it says in Colossians, is holding all things together. In him, all things consist Upholding all things by the word of his power, it says in the Bible elsewhere. So Jesus is holding it, and at that day, he lets it go. He unlooses it. He dissolves it. It all gets released. All the laws of nature, all the vastness of space, and the power of the atom will be released. And that's why the idea of dissolving is so important. One commentator noted many years ago, he said, when the preserving and supporting power of God, which is as it were the soul of this world, shall separate itself from the macrocosm, it will fall together like a soulless corpse because the heart is out of it. That's the idea. He's right now holding the chairs we sit on, the atoms, the molecule, the sun, Everything's being upheld by the word of his sovereign power. Have you thought about what it means that existence itself will be radically altered? Matthew Henry says this about that. He says, the visible heavens 
as unable to abide when the Lord shall come in his glory, shall pass away. They shall undergo a mighty alteration, and this shall be very sudden and with such a noise as the breaking and tumbling down of so great a fabric must necessarily occasion. You know, all of these words are, of course, borrowing from things we know. Right? They're, they're, they're borrowing from our knowledge of what fires do and of what dissolving is and all this kind of stuff. So what's the meaning of that? Why does God borrow his analogical, analogical language of things we know? It's because he expects us to relate to things we know and then to amplify the reality. And so what that means is that if you fail to meditate on the vastness and greatness of God's power in the things we see, how are we going to prepare ourselves for the unseen? Are we dazzled with piddly things? Are we shocked with what comes on the news? That is small compared to the things that are coming. Perhaps we need to take time this afternoon or this week to just marvel again at the greatness of some of the things. These fires going on. We, we see tornadoes blazing through or coming through entire towns. We see the power of uh, firestorms and stars and nuclear power. But compared to these, this great day, that is like splashing water in your kitchen sink and comparing that to a tsunami. It's not the same. There's a magnitude, a greatness of magnitude. And so what does this call us to? It calls us to magnify today the sustaining power of our Jesus who is holding all things together and to increasingly know and meditate on the glory of Jesus Christ. He is so glorious, and that day his promise and his power and his majesty and his lordship will be fully known. Now this was maybe the easier part of the text. Now I want to get into what I would say is is the more confusing and difficult part of the text. And that is the question of when it says, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The elements and the works, what are those? Specifically, the elements. What are they? It's a very rare word. Stoicheia. It's only used seven times in the Bible. It means the rudiments of anything, the building blocks, the ABCs of something. Now, there's three opinions here by the scholars and commentators as to what the stoicheia might be. The elements might be the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. They may be supernatural powers, angelic powers, or they may be simply the elements of earth. Earth, air, fire, and water, as the ancient um, Greeks would have thought, were the basic elements of everything. So which of the three are they, or is it something else? Now, it would be awkward if it was earth air, fire, and water, because then Peter would basically be saying, especially for fire, fire will destroy fire. It's a little bit odd to say. I don't think Peter has that in mind here. That's a Greek notion. Peter did not think also in modern notions of atoms, protons, and neutrons, and quirks, and quarks, and subatomic realities. So I don't think it's the physical elements of earth that the elements there mean. If you look throughout this chapter, including this verse, you'll see that really Peter stepping back really talks about two major spheres. And that is the sphere of heaven and the sphere of earth. The heavens and the earth. Those are the major spheres, the two major groups. Look at verse 5 and 7 and 13 if you've got your Bible open. Now the heavens we've seen earlier 
refers to the expanse, the firmament, or what we might today call the skies or, and outer space. Well, and the earth, guess what that refers to? Earth. It's not that difficult. But the question is, do the elements plug themselves into earth or into the heavens? Notice verse 12, because it gets brought up again. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Peter connects the elements with the heavens. And in fact, we see that also in verse 10, and it's not as clear in the English, but I think in the Greek it's more powerful. Because if you look at the text, it says, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And then we have a comma in our English, and it says, the earth also. Literally in the Greek it says, and earth also. It's like distancing. It's two groups. The heavens and the elements are together. And on the other side, you've got the other group, the earth and the works. Okay, so you've got two groups, two majors, heaven and earth underneath, elements and the works. And that's why I think the elements actually refer back to that which are the building blocks of the heavens. So the elements, what are the building blocks of the heavens? Are the sun, the moon, and the stars. Strikingly, in the Bible, those building blocks are often used with the coming of the day of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, they're often mentioned together with the day of the Lord. For example, Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 34, we see Edom's judgment being a kind of a picture of judgment to come. And God says this, The host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens, two groups, shall be rolled together as a scroll, and their host shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as the falling fig from the fig tree. And then it says for it later in verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. You notice the hosts of heaven, which are the, the stars and stuff, are differentiated from the heavens themselves. They are that which contains them. Even Justin Martyr, he's an early church father, 100 AD, he also said the elements are the sun, moon, and stars, the heavenly elements. Now, that was a lot of thinking. And you might be thinking, well, who cares? They're both going to get burned, earth, heaven. Why such specificity? Why all this time in a sermon on what this is? I'm going to answer that. But first we have to ask ourselves, what are the works of the earth? Because we talked about the heavens, the elements. We first got to go back and ask, what are the works of the earth? Okay, so what are the works in that, that are in the earth? Probably this refers to simply the natural parts of creation. Plants, animals, trees, minerals, mountains. All these things we see and everything that God has given to us to enjoy and to have dominion over. But what did we do in the dominion mandate? We started to go out and we start to use them. We build homes, we build barns, we build factories, we make cars, clothing, phones, instruments, Lego, makeup, all kinds of things. We use the resources, the works of God's hands on the earth and we turn them into things. So I think the works include the earth, everything that God has made, and what we have done with it. Because all of that will come under the blazing power of God. 
Okay, both get destroyed, heaven and earth, right? The heavens and the elements, the earth and the works therein. Now I'm going to tie it on a knot here. Do you remember what the third view was of the elements? It was the supernatural powers. Most people don't think about this when they think of the heavenly elements. But this gets to the heart of why I believe Peter stresses the details here. There is a strong link in the Bible and in Jewish writings between celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars, and supernatural powers. Even now we know about this because unbelievers will seek things like horoscopes and astrology, looking to the skies for power, for answers, for ways of knowing things that are beyond the mind of God. And that is very common throughout world history. Now, stepping back for a second, because that is going to be a huge link into why I believe Peter stresses these details here in the destruction of the earth and heavens. Stepping back, what are the scoffers challenging? The word of God, his promise. Right, God's word. And Peter defends the trustworthiness of the word of God. In fact, throughout the Bible, the authority of the word of God is directly connected to the worship of God. His word and his worship come together. You challenge the word, you will no longer worship him. You deny what he said, why would I serve him? Those things come together. False worship, otherwise known as idolatry, is the result. And what has brought the curse upon this world? Idolatry at heart. Replacing the things of the creator for the created things. And who all are created things? Angels and the things of earth. We're going to see this come together. Turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy 4. God has given the law. They broke it. They made an idol. Remember in Exodus, Moses comes down, smashes the two tables of stone. Moses gives another law, the Ten Commandments again, Deuteronomy 5. But in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy literally means second law. Moses says this with respect to God. So Deuteronomy 4, and I'll start here at verse 4. Oh, verse 5. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments. That's the word of God, right? Even as the Lord my God commanded me that ye should do so in the land, whether ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. And say, um, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely... All these, uh, surely this is a great nation and a wise and an understanding people. It will go on here. I have a reference issue. Okay, verse 14. And the Lord commanded you again to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed to yourselves for, and here's the key, ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke to you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. They didn't see an image. There was no similitude, no likeness, not something they could tangibly see with their eyes. 
And then it says, why? Why did God not show himself that way? Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image and the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. You see that? The earth and the works that are therein, man takes and turns into an idol. And that's why God spoke. But man takes the works of God and destroys them. But there's a further link because we haven't talked about the elements. Look on. Verse 19. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven and when thou seest the sun, there's our elements, and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven shouldest be driven to what? To worship them. And serve them which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. And then it goes on and talks about God saving Israel. You see the link though. Man in his idolatry takes the elements and the works. And turns them in his idolatry into something beside the creator to worship. So the curse comes on all of it. And that is why Peter specifies this level of destruction. Israel in its history is replete with worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. In fact, in Jeremiah, it says when when destruction comes, they're like, man, look what happens when we serve God, Jehovah. We're going back to the queen of heaven. We're going to offer incense, things of the earth, to that queen because when we do her things, boy, life is good. And that's what idolatry does. We start to think the things of earth and the things of heaven, we've got this all nicely packaged together and that's exactly what's happening in our neighborhoods and in our streets and in our godless nation. People are taking the things of earth and looking for themselves to build themselves temples and serve anything but God. And that's why it needs to be destroyed. Throughout the, uh, Israel's history, Babylon, for example, it uses language of stars and moon and sun getting destroyed or darkened for Babylon's judgment. Even at the fall of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, the language is like this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven. That's not literal. That's judgment on Jerusalem for her idolatry. But it's using cosmic language because idolatry always causes man to look up to the stars and some other powers besides God. And that is why the day of the Lord for Israel in AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem, is spoken of with that kind of language. But I'm going to, stepping back at the final day of the Lord, man will have nothing left of the substance of the created order to create her idols. The earth, the sticks and stones that she worshipped, gone. The sun, moon, and stars, the elements that she used to look to those higher beings, the supernatural beings, gone. And who will be left? God alone. It will be the day of his vindication, not just on man, but also on the rebellious supernatural powers. God condemns both in the destruction of the heavens and the earth because the whole created order is cursed in human corruption. And that is why the next set of verses talk about morals, righteousness, what we do, how we live, who we worship 
That's why Peter goes on straight to the idea of how do you live? How are you prepared? In holiness. Because simply, if you wanted to sum this whole verse up, it'd be simply this. Moral corruption leads to cosmic destruction. That's the summary in my mind of verse 10. The Puritan John Trapp saw the same thing. He said this, The very visible heavens are defiled with men's sins and must therefore be purged by fire. Have you considered then what will be torched on that great day? How the stuff that has competed for the affection of our hearts, the things we can set our hearts on, our cars, our house, our clothing, our looks, will go up. What a value will be left for you on that great day? What are you and I ultimately investing in? Why do we frantically pursue such temporary things and set our hearts on them when they're going to be gone? Do we suppose we will do our families a favor when we cook our meals and bring home the paycheck and go to church Invest in our stocks when we teach our children. If it is not for God's glory, if it is for the glory of any of the created stuff, including the angels, it's gone. It's vain. In vain do they worship me, seeking for commandments, the commandments of men. Oh, know this morning the frailty of your stuff. The vulnerability of your hearts. Proverbs 4.23 then says this. Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. And like a fast approaching army. The day of the Lord is marching towards this wicked world. And then we got to step back and think of the two comings of Christ. Because in his first coming he came in humility. But he is returning in radiance. He came in obscurity. But he is returning in the sight of all. Do our prayers then breathe with the expectancy of thy kingdom come the way Jesus meant it? Or do we just pray, O Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And we don't even think of what we're saying. How many times haven't we uttered that word, that phrase, without thinking about it? Oh, let us then exhort one another. Let us pray for each other. Let us take stock of our spiritual lives. Let us push the boundaries of common, comfortable conversations after church and throughout the week with our neighbors, our friends, our brothers, and our sisters. Let us push the envelope because it is going to get completely pushed over. And we do it not for ourselves. Not to feed our hearts or our egos. No, let's do it for the sake of Him who is worthy of all worship. Because sticks and stones and heavenly celestial beings are not worth it. It's a cheap exchange for the glorious God and Savior. If man, think about this. If man is willing to go to such extremes to serve idols. Why are Christians not more to serve the living God? Oh, let us be bold for him who will boldly come. Let us take up then, go from this place, take up our gardening, milking our cows, building our shops, doing the laundry, doing family worship for him, higher than the created order, for him who loved us and gave himself for us. 
That is not wasted resolve. No, that is a wise investment. The gardens and the shops and the laundry and the makeup bottle, it's all going to get burned up. But the fruit of the kingdom, that will last. And that's what Jesus looks for. Whatever you have done to the least of these, my brethren, you have done to me. So let us look ahead and secure in Christ today our happiness and our hope so that when he returns, we will enter into eternal glory. Dear people, the only way to pass through that day is to already know the Lord of that day now. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Repent of your idols. Turn away from them. And turn to Jesus, the eternal Son. In him is life. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, John says. And, O Lord, we thank you that the glory of Christ is seen in the word of Christ, and as the Spirit opens our hearts, we behold him by faith. O God, may we see more of him. May we live towards that day. O God, help us to put away all idolatry in our hearts and lives and to to follow hard after you, to break up the fallow ground, to behold you more in the word, Lord, to seek that and to spur one another up onto love and good works. O Lord, hasten the day of your coming. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.